This afternoon, I would like to talk about an ethics of uncertainty that I mentioned yesterday. This is the theme that I've been reflecting upon during the coronavirus lockdown. And uh, in my talks this week, I will be sharing with you some of the ideas, some of the uh, topics that I've been uh, reading about and reflecting about. I'm going to start though with a very brief, um, a very brief uh, text from the Pali discourses. Uh, this is um, a dialogue between a wandering ascetic called Vacha and the Buddha, who is here just simply called Bo Gautama, Mr. Gautama. So Vacha says, Mr. Gautama, is there a self? Silence. Gautama says nothing. Vacha continues, Mr. Gautama, is there not a self? And again, silence. The Buddha says nothing. So Vajagota got up from his seat and went away. This is extremely brief, extremely pithy, and yet I think it touches directly on this question of uncertainty. When I speak of an ethics of uncertainty, I'm not just using the word uncertain in a sort of vague general sense, like, I'm not so sure, I don't know, we'll do our best. But what seems to be suggested in this uh, very brief dialogue um, is a different quality of uncertainty altogether. And I think that uncertainty is uh, uncomfortable. We don't have enough information in the text itself to know exactly why Vacha posed this question and why he stood up at the end and went away. There's not, nothing is really said. It could be that he simply didn't believe Gautama knew the answer to the question. It could simply have been that. Perhaps he felt that Gautama wasn't really taking him seriously. Perhaps he thought that Gautama might even be making fun of him. I suspect that he got up and went away because he found the silence unbearable. When we ask someone questions of this nature and one assumes that Vacha was serious about these questions. He wanted to have some help in understanding who he was, uh, what kind of being uh, he found himself as. So this silence threw him back very much on his own question. By not saying anything, Gautama leaves the questions hanging. 
He doesn't appear to have any particular view about whether there is or isn't a self. But that doesn't mean that he has no way of um, relating to those questions. His silence invites Vachagota to stay with the questions rather than reach for an answer. And if you think about it, that is our habit. If someone asks us a question, we instinctively um, want to give an answer. If we ask somebody else, particularly an important question that's meaningful to us, in the hope that that person might shed some light on it, um, then by hearing nothing, we too are thrown back on the question that we asked. We're somehow confronted with the oddity, with the poignancy of being a self-aware creature that can become a question for itself. So who am I? Or what is this, as they say in Zen? And rather than let the mind latch onto some answer, it allows us to really begin to taste and to feel what it's like to not know to question and it's here I feel that we touch into the roots of uncertainty. We're left with that uncertainty but it's not in this example a conceptual uncertainty just a, an intellectual position where I don't know one thing over another I'm uncertain but it's an existential uncertainty. It's an uncertainty that we can feel in our body, in our minds, in our emotions. And it can be difficult to stay with that. It's much more comfortable to know that there is or there is not a self. Now, some of us who are familiar with uh, Buddhist traditions might find this dialogue rather strange because surely Buddhism teaches that there is no self. The doctrine of Anatman is very often translated as the doctrine of no self. So if that were the case, why on this occasion does the Buddha leave the question hanging? My sense is because the Buddha does not actually hold the belief, let alone the doctrine, that there is no self. Strangely, there is no passage in the Pali discourses where uh, the Buddha makes that claim. Not, not, not a single time. I think we can look for further clarification about this question by turning to another discourse, and this is called the Kachanagota Sutta, the discourse to a man called Kachana. 
And Kachana goes to the Buddha and he asks him, um, what is complete vision or samaditi, right view, as it's often, I think, rather poorly translated? What is this complete vision, this sama, complete, ditti, outlook, perspective, view, vision? And this, of course, is the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is quite a central feature of Gautama's teaching. And this is how Gautama responds. He says, most people are attached to the binary or the duality of is and isn't. Most people are attached to the binary of is and isn't. But people with complete vision do no longer orient themselves to the world in this way. So by letting go of that duality, that binary, something either is this or it's not this, that opens us up into an uncertainty. But here we get the sense that this must be a creative uncertainty because it's the very foundation of the path itself. This is not just a one-off question about some topic, but Kachana is inquiring about the very beginning of the path itself. It's also worth noting that is and isn't, ati and nati, are exactly the terms that Vacha used when he asked, is there a self? Is there not a self? And this is not an accident. Clearly, both of these dialogues hinge on this binary is and is not. I think like most of us, uh, Vacha is unconsciously attached to the binaries, the dualities, that are built into the structure of the grammar of all human languages. It's not surprising that we think in these terms because that's how we speak. And there are no special languages like Tibetan or Hopi or something that get around this problem and don't use those binaries. It's built into the very structure of human language itself. And for us language users, uh, a bit like with Hamlet in his famous soliloquy, we're somewhat convinced that we either must be someone or not be someone. To be or not to be, that is the question, says Hamlet to himself. Again, affirming the fact that there cannot be any other option. An idea that likewise we find with Aristotle. There's no ex third option, no excluded middle. So Gautama is inviting us to take a closer, a more holistic look at the world around us. And if, whether through meditation or whether because of our love of nature, we enjoy paying attention to the natural world, then we are fully alert to how we discover so many different living things. 
and they're all constantly arising and ceasing coming about disappearing within complex webs of relationships just take a simple example imagine a seed of let's say a flower which we plant in the earth and then as we water it and as the sun warms the soil we see it sprout and then grow into a stem and then into a flower and once the flower has spread its seed it too will wilt and fade and die and what we witness is a seamless process of changing events which is porous fluid with no clear-cut beginnings and ends you can't say that the sprout uh, starts here and the seed stops there that's the divisions that we impose on nature the linguistic uh, uh, pat, uh, categories and patterns and terms that we use which are terribly helpful in fact if we didn't have them we wouldn't be listening to this talk now but despite the incredible usefulness of language the indispensability of language as human beings we make a fundamental mistake when we think that the the terms of our language somehow naturally correspond to the way the world itself is is broken up and divided the neat dividing lines and th of thought and language are not to be found in the fuzzy blurry fabric of life so we can see how this uncertainty which might in the first instance appear a little bit uncomfortable or threatening when we allow ourselves to embrace that uncertainty we open ourselves to encountering the world in a less a rigid in a less categorical way and inevitably that kind of complete vision is full of perplexity surprise curiosity wonder as soon as you suspend the habit of seeing yourself and things through these binaries of right and wrong yes and no is and isn't you inevitably come back to the primacy of questioning so to cultivate this kind of vision means on the one hand letting go of fixed opinions and on the other hand it means embracing an ethics of uncertainty because we find ourselves confronted with the ambiguity and the complexity of moral dilemmas in which we are nonetheless called upon as moral agents to respond this is very much the heart of what i call an ethics of uncertainty and you only really have to think of any recent ethical dilemma you may have experienced be it in your work be it in your relationships be it in in politics uh, that the complexity and ambiguity of moral dilemmas um, is something that 
is very, very hard to get our heads around and arrive at a simple, clear-cut answer. That's exactly why they're dilemmas. If we had a clear-cut answer, in some cases we do. It's, it's straightforward. But the ethical issues that really engage us most deeply in our humanity are rarely clear-cut. And yet, despite all that uncertainty, we are called upon as a moral agent, as an actor, to respond, to say something, to do something. We can't just sit there and just do nothing. So this is where we touch upon the, uh, the challenge of living with uncertainty as ethical beings. The text goes on. It's a, this discourse to Kachana is quite brief. We've looked at the first half of it. But this is how Gautama then continues. He says, Kachana, most people are bound to their prejudices and habits. But those who live from the perspective of a complete vision do not get caught up in the habits, fixations, prejudices, or biases of the mind. They are not fixated on myself. They have no doubt that when someone is suffering, she is suffering. And when she stops suffering, her suffering is no more. What they know is independent of others. There's a lot packed into that little text, and I'm not going to unravel it all. If you have questions, uh, you can put them in the chat, and we can explore them after the talk. But what this passage, I think, points to very clearly is that an ethics of uncertainty is one that is uncertain about whether there is a self or whether there's not a self, but it's not uncertain as to whether there is suffering or whether there is not suffering. In other words, this is an ethic that does not need the foundations of any ontology, any belief that there is some kind of reality that we can access by reflection or logic. This is an ethic that is primarily uh, responding to the suffering of the world. And because it's engaged with suffering rather than with knowledge or with reality, then this is something that is intensely one's own experience. This is a unique experience we encounter when we find ourselves engaging with the suffering of somebody else. It's something that we feel rather than something that we know. And again, I feel this points very much to what Martin speaks about, feeling tone. That this is a practice that uh, starts, one might say, perhaps ends with 
our relationship to how we feel in our bodies, in our emotions, in our whole being, rather than what we know and what we believe. So the vision, the complete vision of which Gautama speaks, demands a radical break from this familiar way of inhabiting the world. And I think that it calls for a kind of revolution, a heartfelt revolution, away from being to suffering, or in Greek, from ontos to pathos. And if we put that in more abstract language, from ontology to a kind of pathology and therapy. Pathology we think of as in purely in medical terms, but pathology may, means the way we think about suffering, pathos, feeling, suffering. How do we think about suffering? And the response to suffering is not doctrine or belief, but it is therapy. In other words, it's about engaging in a process of healing. So by turning one's attention away from what is to what suffers, this is where the practice of an ethics of uncertainty begins. We can turn to another uh, discourse that we find in the Pali uh, canon uh, called the Samaditi Sutta, the discourse on complete vision. Exactly the same uh, idea that Kachana asked the Buddha about, which we've just been considering. But the Samaditi Sutta, if you're interested, that's number 10 in the middle length sayings. The Samaditi Sutta does not even mention that complete vision has to do with finding a middle way between is and isn't. Not there. In this text, we take a different approach to what it means to have such complete vision. The speaker in this text is Sariputta, often considered to be the most learned and scholarly of the Buddha's followers. And this is how he begins his presentation of complete vision. He defines it as when a noble disciple understands the unskillful and the root of the unskillful, the skillful and the root of the skillful, and in that way, that person is one of complete vision. So here we have a sense of samaditi, complete vision, that has to do quite explicitly with ethics. In other words, the one of complete, the person who has this complete vision from this perspective is the one who understands the difference between what is skillful and what is unskillful. What lies at the root of unskillful behavior and what lies at the root of skillful behavior. 
I'm sure most of you who are familiar with Buddhist ideas um, will be quite uh, accustomed to, to thinking in this way. The, the difference might be that in some uh, traditions they translate skillful and unskillful as wholesome and unwholesome. But it's exactly the same word, kusala and akusala. The word kusala really has to do with skill, being adept at something. Ethics in this sense is about the refinement of a certain uh, skill set, a capacity to differentiate between what is good and what is not good, what is helpful and what is unhelpful. It's a kind of discernment, uh, a capacity to differentiate. And that's something we can train. But we do that training, that ethical training, not in the abstract, in other words, we can go to any number of Buddhist texts and we can look up a list of the 10 skillful actions, the 10 unskillful actions. We can look at how the different roots of skill and unskill are psychologically analyzed and so on. But uh, that is really not getting very deeply into this matter. We can memorize the, you know, the 10 good deeds and the 10 bad deeds, but that doesn't really help us understand the uh, roots of those behaviors within ourselves in terms of how that feels when we're actually confronting an ethical dilemma. So ethics is a practice like meditation. It's something that we, uh, we are constantly called upon to apply and in acting, in other words, in speaking or doing something physically or doing something as a group, we then can pay attention to the consequences of that action, how that action has landed within ourselves. How many times have we said something that we think is terribly uh, useful or clever or insightful and it's fallen flat? And you suddenly realize, actually, that wasn't a particularly skillful thing to say. Maybe you suddenly realize how it must have offended someone in the room. So we begin to refine this ethical intelligence through the process of acting, through the process of our own behavior, rather than getting some abstract knowledge of what's good, what's bad, and then trying to somehow adhere to that as if we are following a rule book. If we're going to translate this into actual human experience, we also need to reconsider, I feel, what we mean by confusion or delusion. If we think of samaditi, complete vision, as a kind of intelligence, a kind of discernment, then in Buddhist thought, that implies that what we're overcoming or what we're working with is an ethical confusion. We don't know what to do. We're confused. We're uncertain as to what to do. But at the same time, um, we are obliged as ethical beings 
to respond. Now, usually, when we come across terms like ignorance or delusion or confusion, it's presented as though this is some kind of failure to understand the nature of reality or the nature of ourself or the nature of the mind. And Buddhism, in general, has tended to go down this road of a cognitive delusion, cognitive ignorance. In other words, when you look up what it means to be ignorant, it'll say to, you know, we think that what is permanent, sorry, we think that what is impermanent is permanent. We think what is not self is self. We think what is painful is pleasant. In other words, there is a, a cognitive distortion going on. And if ignorance is the source of suffering, as Buddhism often says, then it would follow that if we could somehow get our vision of reality right, then that would dispel ignorance and would lead us towards enlightenment. But it's difficult to understand what that has to do with ethics. You could imagine that someone has a very good conceptual understanding of the nature of reality. Maybe they've done lots of meditation and they see things as impermanent and not self and uh, dukkha. But how is that going to inform how they act? How is that going to help them with their you know, their responses to life itself, both their own life and the life of others. So I think this discourse on complete vision um, recognizes at the very outset that um, confusion and ignorance is not so much confusion or ignorance about what is the case with reality, but it's confusion or ignorance about what one should do. And there is no a priori right thing to do. It's interesting also that when we come to the roots of the unskillful, they're listed as three, greed, hatred, and confusion. Now, greed and hatred, we don't have much difficulty with. That's quite self-evident. We know what it's like to, to crave something or to desire something, and we know what it's like to, to reject something and to dislike something. It's less clear what confusion means here. If I speak personally, I'm trying to understand uh, what confusion is at the same level or at the same pitch as how I understand greed and hatred. And if I'm honest, I have plenty of moments of desire, plenty of moments of dislike. But when I think of my actual life and I ask myself what it's like to be confused in that actual life, the confusion has primarily to do with not knowing how to act. I'm confused about what to say. I'm confused about what to think. I'm confused 
about what to do. And that is an ethical uncertainty. And it's probably the uncertainty and the confusion that troubles us the most. So, from this perspective, samaditi, or complete vision, is about being able to hold moral uncertainty while at the same time preparing oneself to respond to the situation at hand. In Western parlance, this is sometimes called a situational ethic. It's not dissimilar either from what has been presented as a feminist ethic of care. I'm not going to go into that today. So in a situational ethic, um, this is describing where situations which are acknowledged as being probably unique. In other words, there's no rule book that can tell us exactly what to do in advance. And we stop or we get out of the habit at least of immediately saying, what is the right thing to do? Instead, we might want to ask, what is the most caring thing to do? What is the most compassionate thing to do? What is the most appropriate thing to do? That's a situational ethic, one that has transcended the, the simplistic binary of there must be a right there must be a right thing to do and there must be a wrong thing to do. Of course, those terms are not meaningless, right and wrong, but the danger is that we absolutize them not just in the abstract, but also in immediate and concrete situations. There must be a right thing to do, and therefore there must be a wrong thing to do. We can hold that as a question. We don't know. All we can genuinely um, offer in such a situation is an appropriate, caring, compassionate, and hopefully a wise response to the situation at hand and without having moral certainty we also um, without having moral certainty um, sorry I forgot what I was going to say without having moral certainty every ethical choice we make will be a risk. There's no guarantee that what we then say or do will uh, turn out for the best. We have to take the risk that we might actually make things worse. We have to honor our not knowing, our incapacity to fully understand the range of complexities that are confronting us in an ethical dilemma. And I think this becomes all the more um, striking and troubling perhaps too, is when we think about some of the really great moral issues of our day. And in particular, 
I'm thinking about the question of climate change, in which, at least from some uh, sources today, um, is of such a grave danger to the survival, not only of humans, but to other uh, forms of life on earth, that it is genuinely an existential question not just about our own personal survival or that of our children, but for the survival of life on earth as a whole. So how do we bring this idea of a complete vision, an ethics of uncertainty, to bear on questions of this magnitude? I suspect many of us um, are concerned about the dangers that face not only future generations, but it appears today, even within our own lifetimes, that in 30 or so years, uh, there may be uh, environmental catastrophes uh, and disasters that uh, are no longer able to be prevented. These, I feel, or this at least, is one of the great ethical issues of our time. And I feel that we have to be careful not to assume uh, a fixed position uh, either for or against, let's say, fossil fuels, but to try as best we can to understand this process that is now being uh, increasingly uh, well described, and also acknowledging that you and I as individuals will probably have relatively little uh, capacity to make much of a difference on our own. This is an ethics that faces us not just as individual men and women, but it faces us as a community, it faces us as a society, and it faces us as a species, as a human species, as a mammalian species. And I'm not suggesting that uh, by a close reading of Buddhist uh, discourses, we will uh, find the magical key that will unlock this conundrum. We won't. Uh, the Buddha had no possibility of understanding that this could be an issue that would arise some two and a half thousand years after his death. Uh, Buddhism doesn't have answers for this or any other contemporary issues. What it does provide us, though, is with a set of values, a perspective, a practice, and the possibility of working communally towards facing and responding to these dilemmas as wisely as we can. That's all I'm going to um, say today. Um, I have written uh, recently, also at the very beginning of this lockdown, a, an essay called Embracing Extinction, 
And this will appear in Tricycle magazine in the summer issue, which will come out um, in a couple of weeks. So if you wanted to uh, uh, take some of these reflections further, then you might find it of interest to have a look at that, um, at that essay. So we still have about 30 minutes uh, to go, and I'd be very happy to respond to any comments or questions that you might have. Um, but that requires that you go to the chat function at the bottom of your screen and you start tapping away. So this is from Ken and Sheila Meyer. Why be ethical at all, Stephen? <laughs> uh, you may as well ask, why be human? Uh, ethics is really just a shorthand for how to live well. And if you have no interest in living well, then in that case, maybe ethics is not so important to you. But I think in, uh, in, in acknowledging that, you're also questioning what it means to be human, uh, to be caring, to be responsive, to be part of a community. This is from uh, Jen Danvers. Can you explain a bit more about the link between non-duality and the feeling tone? Is it that awareness of the feeling tone helps us to move away from labeling and attachment to things that are permanent and binary, such as I'm happy, I'm sad, and so on? Um, I'm not entirely sure where your question is coming from, Jen, but the, my immediate response is to acknowledge that Whenever we utilize these Buddhist categories, and we might include among that skillful and unskillful, and when we come on to uh, Vedana or feeling tone, then that's very often presented as a binary too, a pleasant, unpleasant, positive, negative. And occasionally you'll throw in a middle term, which will be neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That is often how it appears uh, in the suttas. And that, of course, is useful. And, of course, it resonates with our actual experience. We know what it's like to feel good. We know what it's like to not feel good. But my sense is that these binaries that the Buddha does use, albeit with a warning, should not be treated literally. In other words, to think there is pleasure on the one hand, and there's pain on the other, and there's a kind of middle zone called neither one nor the other in the middle. I find it more helpful if we look at these binaries in terms of the non-binary perspective of uh, samaditi, of, of complete vision, to think of them as a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, we have ecstasy. On the other end of the spectrum, we have agony. And between the two poles, we have a whole range of human experience. There might, in the very, very middle of it, be a point in which we are literally not 
feeling pleasure nor pain. Uh, but again, that's, I feel a little tricky to pin down. And I don't think that's the point. The point is to recognize that experience spreads across a spectrum rather than being something that can be categorized as pleasant or painful. And I think we can say the same also about skillful, unskillful. It's nice to think that when we respond to an ethical dilemma, we're either doing it skillfully or we're doing it unskillfully. In reality, it can easily be a mix of the two. Some of what we do is helpful. Some of what we do in ex exactly the same thing can be unhelpful. It might be good in one respect, not so good in the other. And this is again about embracing the, the, uh, the, the fact of uncertainty. We don't really know. Or we can think in terms of the roots of the skillful and the roots of the unskillful. So greed, hatred, delusion on the one hand, and then generosity, love, clarity on the other. These are not two separate things, but actually they too are spectra. We've got greed, we've also got generosity. And as a human being, we experience both and we experience everything that somehow is between them. They're not separated by a gulf, a gap, but they too blur in the middle. So that would be my um, sense of how this non-duality, or the, I prefer to use the word non-binary. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember, okay. Um, uh, the, the, this, is, uh, this I think is what is implicit within a non-binary way of thinking, or a way of thinking about ethics that embraces uncertainty. Um, Nula has asked whether I would share the Sutta references on the notice board, and I will. I'll actually, um, I'll actually copy the text that I was working from and post the whole thing. How does this ethics of uncertainty differ from pragmatism or functional contextualism? Um, I'm not sure what functional contextualism is. I've not come across that expression. Uh, but pragmatism is certainly part of it, yes. Uh, pragmatism, uh, again, if we understand that in the deeper philosophical sense that um, we find, for example, in William James, then pragmatism is a philosophy that started with James and others at the end of the 19th century. But it's a philosophy that has done away with the idea of truth. Uh, that's often not when pe people say, oh, I'm a pragmatist. They often don't recognize that traditionally that means to have actually abandoned the notion of truth. It means to, a pragmatist is somebody who seeks to, who guides themselves ethically, not in terms of what is right and wrong, as though that somehow corresponded to reality, but responds to situations in terms of what will bring the greater benefit to others and what will be likely to cause uh, harm to others. In that sense, it's quite close to Buddhist ethics too, which is very much about measuring the worth of our acts in terms of the harm that they cause or the well-being that they cause. 
So I would argue that yes, this ethics of uncertainty is pragmatic, very much in the terms of traditional pragmatic philosophy, but it's also, I would say, skeptical. It's a skeptical ethics. I think that the Buddha was an ethical skeptic, but skepticism, again, has got somewhat a bad press in our culture. We think of someone who's skeptical as somebody who just doesn't believe anything. But actually, skepticism comes from the Greek skepsis, which means to analyze or to inquire. It's about holding questions, very much as we've been describing in this talk. It's to be able to live with uncertainty, to be able to uh, deepen our questioning without compromising our moral um, obligation to respond. I'm not saying that's easy. It's very difficult. It's much easier if we had, you know, the 10 precepts or the five precepts or the 10 commandments or the Torah or the Quran uh, or the Vinayar in Buddhism. And we just follow the rules and we can feel somehow morally justified um, because we've done what the book says. But unfortunately, as we're probably aware, that can often lead to cruelty. Uh, it, it also absolves you as an individual person from taking responsibility for your actions. Responsibility is, is thrown back onto the people who made the rule books, whether it's God or Moses or the Buddha or Muhammad, doesn't matter. I feel that what's quite uh, central in the practice of the Dharma is for each of us to become our own ethical authority with our own ethical intelligence and as one of the texts said to become independent of others this is an ethics also that emphasizes the need for uh, personal responsibility and autonomy in the practice i know this sounds amusing but i ask seriously within the realms of ethics and binary I've been vegetarian since starting my practice many years ago. I have no desire to eat meat, but it can actually nearly kill me when my fa family gather for fish and chips once or twice a year and I don't join in. I embrace non-harm, but sometimes I feel the weight of righteousness or ethics. Do you have any views on this? It's interesting that the Buddha did not lay down any precept against eating meat. Uh, he was not himself a vegetarian. Um, he, the only thing that we know from the texts is that he uh, did not allow his monks to eat uh, the flesh of an animal that had been knowingly killed for them. But if meat was available on the market, if it was offered to you in your begging bowl, then it was okay to eat it. Now, I know things are a lot more complicated in the world we live today. Uh, and we have, you know, the industrial killing of chickens and cows and sheep and so forth and so on, and enormous suffering that is produced thereby. And we also, of course, now know that one of the great causes for climate change is the uh, production of, um, of, of uh, meat that we get through the industrial farming. Uh, so there's many, many issues to bear in mind. Um, 
once again, I think we have to acknowledge that there is an element of uncertainty here. So when your family, Jody, are tucking into your fish, their fish and chips, um, there might be a part of you that your body, perhaps, that is recognizing I could do with some of that protein. I, I occasionally eat a bit of fish, occasionally eat a bit of chicken. I try to reduce my consumption uh, of meat. Um, I've recently given up altogether eating uh, beef products of any kind. But I find I'm on a kind of a sliding scale. I need to honor the needs of my body. And I do feel at times, like when I lead a meditation retreat at Guy House, for example, that after three or four days working very hard on a, a, a vegetarian and often a vegan diet, I find that I, I'm, I'm deeply lacking in energy. And I know that if I go and have a piece of chicken or something, that this will give me a boost that no amount of tofu will. So I have to take all of these different factors into consideration and not be dogmatic about my vegetarianism. That would be my brief response to that. Are you saying we can trust our emotions over the mental knowledge in front of us at the time? Um, if I understand you correctly, I think you're uh, suggesting that what the, the touchstone for our ethical acts should stem more from our feelings and emotions than from our, uh, the, the amount of information we have or amount of knowledge that we possess or our intellectual understanding of the situation. Um, I'm not actually saying that. What I am saying, though, is that we need to find uh, an ethical uh, stance in life in which we uh, pay heed to all of these uh, aspects of our experience. In other words, when I'm faced with a moral dilemma, I don't want to just trust my feelings. My feelings might be underpinned by fear, for example, or my feelings might be underpinned by, you know, some some visceral dislike of another person. On the other hand, I don't want to be governed entirely by my intellect. In other words, my, my let's say, my, my, my sense of what it means to be ethical in a Buddhist way. That's a, a theory. What I've been sharing with you today is a theory in many ways. And um, there's an equal danger that I get locked into my, you know, my abstract commitments to what is good and I fail to acknowledge what all the signals that my body and my emotions are, are screaming out at me. And I think the real skill of cultivating ethical intelligence is learning how to negotiate these different signals that are coming in. They're coming in from the mind, from rationality, from learning, and they're also coming in from emotions and intuitions and feelings. And they're not always going to be in, uh, in agreement with each other. But at a certain point, we have to make a choice. Even if that choice is, I can't do anything. That's still a choice. And the real challenge, and again, I think this will be with us until the day we die, is, 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 is how do I choose to say this or not to say this, to say that or to do that? And there's no ready-made answer 
to that question. It's an ongoing practice. It's an ongoing willingness to have the courage to take risks. Thank you, Stephen. Can you speak about the idea of original sin? Not really. Uh, this is a, a, a Christian concept that really has uh, little uh, bearing uh, within a framework of Buddhism. Um, I do find it a very interesting idea, and, and I don't in any sense wish to dismiss it. Uh, I think it's a powerful idea. Um, but as I understand it, it has to do very much with the fall, the fallen state of the human person who has lost, as it were, their uh, connection to God or the true or the beautiful, the good, and has found him or herself uh, in a world where they feel cast out of an Edenic or a paradisical state. And at one level, particularly if we've been raised in a Christian culture, uh, these kinds of, of narratives and stories and myths uh, inform our ethical intelligence quite deeply. Um, so if we find that idea helpful, if we find those myths helpful, and I think on occasion they are, um, then we need to incorporate them into our ways of thinking and behaving in a way that's helpful. But that's all I can really say. Can you expand a little more about the values, perspectives and common practices that we have to, that we have to address the big issues like climate change? Um, I think all I can really say to that is that each of us, I feel, has to try and find our own voice on these issues. Um, and this means paying attention to uh, those who we respect and admire in this field, learning as much as we can. Um, I was recently with Martine, we were reading an essay by James Lovelock, uh, who's really a great hero of mine. Uh, I remember hearing him speak 30 odd years ago at Schumacher College in uh, Devon, and always being immensely impressed by this man. And I liked him particularly because he didn't go along <clears throat> with the kind of the green orthodoxy that was prevalent at the time. Um, I remember one question uh, he was asked at the end of a talk. Uh, someone said, Mr. Lovelock, if you were president of the world and you could make one decision that would be enacted, what would that decision be? What would you choose to do? And without any hesitation, he said, I would have all cattle killed. Now, you know, for him, this was the primary source of global warming. Long time ago, he was saying this. That, as a Buddhist, I didn't particularly like the idea of killing all those cattle. But I admired him for his willingness to be able to speak his mind. He's also been a great advocate of nuclear energy, which has not gone down well with his green supporters. And again, I admire his courage and clarity and no-nonsense attitude to say these things. I'm also impressed by the fact that he changes his mind when he learns new stuff. 
he adopts another position. He's 101 years old now. And I feel in many ways, it's by looking at people like him that we can look to role models as to how to guide our own thinking and our own behavior uh, on these extraordinarily difficult uh, questions. One of the suttas you mentioned included something along the lines of what they know is independent of others. Could you please give the exact quote and unpack this a little for us? What they know is independent of others. Um, well, that's pretty much the exact quote. Uh, the word in Pali of, for independent of others is aparapachaya, not other dependent, not dependent on others. It's a phrase that you find frequently in the suttas, in the discourses. And I think it's striking that it's included in what for me is a very, very central discourse, the discourse to Kachanagurta. And what it highlights again is the notion of autonomy. Now this doesn't always sit very comfortably with traditional Buddhism, because if you believe that there is no self, then what is it that could possibly be autonomous? Isn't autonomy, in fact, the very problem, being an independent, self-existent person? That's one of the things that you're meant to get rid of. Autonomy here is moral autonomy. And it's the autonomy um, of one who has entered the stream of the path. This is where the phrase is located. The person who has let go of reactivity or craving or grasping and has entered into the Eightfold Path is regarded as having become independent of others in the teaching and in the practice. In other words, at that point, you become your own authority for the practice. This is very much a teaching of personal empowerment. And I think also communal empowerment. And something I feel that is extraordinarily central uh, to this ethics of uncertainty that I've been speaking about. An ethics of uncertainty is also an ethic in which we are no longer certain of what the tradition tells us uh, is actually right or appropriate for our time. It's to be able to put any kind of doctrine or belief system into question and instead learn to trust the, uh, the authenticity of your own judgment, your own experience, your own understanding, your own feelings, and to thereby cultivate um, uh, or, or cultivate a way of life that leads to your own flourishing as a person. That's how I would uh, understand this idea about becoming independently of others. After taking part in the online SON retreat, I read your book, Faith to Doubt. I was wondering if your new book on ethics of uncertainty is a further development of this, or how does it differ? Well, the answer to the first part of the question is yes. And if you remember uh, the subtitle of the book, The Faith to Doubt, it was um, The Faith to Doubt, Glimpses of Buddhist Uncertainty. So even at that time, and this was that was published in, I think, 1990, so that's 30 years ago, 
uncertainty was already a topic very much on my agenda. And if you uh, are interested in some of what I've been speaking about today, you might find some of that book to be of help, particularly around the practice of uncertainty, which I frame as the practice of Korean song. And I think probably in the days that come, Martin will probably introduce some of those practices. But it's a meditation that involves staying with the question, what is this? And allowing oneself to be infused by that sense of perplexity or uncertainty, confusion, um, that is not an abnegation of action, but is rather a finding of the kind of existential depth we spoke about today as a means whereby to ground us in a kind of groundless ground of uncertainty as a frame for then uh, choosing to act. Are different thing, are virtues and ethics different things in Buddhism? Um, there's a semantic issue, I think, here. Um, uh, it depends really what sort of Buddhist terms you would compare with those English terms. Virtue uh, is possibly is often is a translation of kusala, which I've been translating as skillful. Um, uh, others translated as wholesome. And some will translate it as virtue, virtuous actions. When I first studied uh, with Tibetans, then we spoke about um, vir the virtues and the non-virtues. I've noticed recently that Bhikkhu Bodhi has started translating sila, not as ethics or morality, but as virtue. Now, if the translators can't agree on this, then that doesn't leave much hope for us. I feel that, the, that you should put to one side Buddhism here and try to understand for yourself what those terms mean to you. Is something virtuous, something going necessarily to be ethical? Is something ethical always virtuous? Are they synonyms? Are they not? See how those words are used in the language that you speak, namely English, and all of the values and other things that are implicit within an English-speaking world. Um, it almost feels to me that if the Dharma doesn't lead inexorably to eco-Dharma, then it has no purpose. Is this too absolute? Well, I'm not in a position to judge that. And if I were to judge it, I'd be accused of being absolute myself. All I would su suggest is to note within yourself what it feels like to go absolute. Probably in many respects, people who hold absolutist opinions we might think of as being dogmatic. Just think of the, let's say, some social group that you don't agree with, some political party, let's say. And when you hear those people speak and uttering their certainties, that you feel a kind of uh, discomfort in your belly, that this is somehow not the way to go. So are you doing something too in the name of a cause about which you feel passionate 
and wish to really give utter priority to? Or can we be completely committed to, to uh, an issue and a cause of action without it becoming a fixation? Because the problem is, if ethics is something that is a constant realignment and readjustment with changing conditions, then very possibly to hold a fixed position might serve you well in some cases. It might give you courage, but it might also lead you to a position of being stuck and not being flexible enough to adapt to the changing circumstance. Again, I saw this quality very much in James Lovelock. Uh, and he was a great inspiration for me. Somebody who's not absolutist, but somebody who's totally committed. How can you embrace uncertainty whilst, being, whilst still being decisive in your actions? Is this where compassion comes into play? And I would say yes. I feel that that is a, a, a key element. But I'd also add courage. Uh, having the courage to act. In other words, one can recognize that one is not absolutely sure that what one is to do is the right thing, but you feel as an empathetic being, compassion for those that are suffering, but you need more than compassion to act, especially in those sort of situations. You also need the courage to risk acting. And that's often the most difficult part of uh, ethics, is courage, I feel. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.